Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. You'll all know that my lovely sister and family are down here, and they are part of this church. Whenever they're down, they come to this church, and you've probably lots of you've got to know them. But it's our privilege today to invite Sam, uh, who's mission director at Open Doors, to come and speak to us. Um, so, <laughs> give him a huge welcome. Have I said something wrong? He doesn't go by that title; he just goes by Sam. <laughs> come on, Sam. Thank you. You've got a big dangle here. <laughs> You're not going to trip over it? No, I won't trip over it. Hello. Well, I'm just going to pray for Sam. Oh, I've got a clicker. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Sam. Thank you for his life and all he'll bring to us this morning. Help us to listen um, and hear your word to us. So speak through him, Lord, and change our hearts as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Part of the joy of coming down here is finding out what's my new job from Keeley. <laughs> I think that's... Last time it was a different title as well. <laughs> oh, I just work with open doors, don't worry about the rest of that. So. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for having me here today, and thank you so much for your partnership as a church um, in the gospel. I'm here really as an ambassador of Christians around the world who are suffering from the most extreme persecution um, for seeking to be faithful to the gospel, and they want to express their appreciation um, to you as a church for your partnership and for supporting them. So thank you very much for doing that. It's hard sometimes when you live in a particular context to imagine the difference that actually your prayers and your support make to others around the world but whenever we have church leaders coming uh, from some of the most persecuted places or wherever I, whenever I have the privilege to go and travel to please pass on our appreciation for the prayers um, that come from the church in England. So I work for Open Doors. Open Doors really um, specialises in the transference of grace and resources to strengthen the body of Christ and both in the context where um, following Jesus costs the most but also hopefully to strengthen the church in the UK context by telling some of the stories about what God is doing in other parts of the world and that would really encourage you uh, in your faith and what you're doing here. Um, When we think about the persecuted church, it's so easy that we objectify the persecuted church as a bit of an issue over here. Um, And that's really unhelpful because what that does is it alienates um, the purposes of God in that context uh, from the grace that can be transferred to us. But it also alienates us from the reality of persecution and that courage that is there. So really what I want to do today is to tell some stories that help to close the gap a little bit um, and help us to appreciate the fact that we are absolutely connected on the continuum as part of the family of God and we are family and that's not just a soundbite or a kind of a a branding slogan and that's the biblical narrative the biblical picture Jesus prays it in John 17 Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12 And, and part of the reality in the early church was that they started as this small group of people talks about in Acts 4 that they were gathered and held all things in common as it were community But then when the persecution began to happen, it began to disperse the people of God and also as mission created new opportunities for the mission to the Gentiles. There was this importance of understanding that we're a part of the body. We're now in different places. We're now dispersed. We're now working in different mission contexts. But we're part of the same family. We're extensions of the same reality. And that comes out. And the same situation is true today. 
that though we are here in Whitstable in Kent, actually we are as connected to the church in Nigeria this morning who is praying for um, the elections. About 80 million people will turn out for the elections. There's more Christians have been killed in Nigeria in the last year than anywhere else in the world put together. That's the reality of what it takes. We've had a pastor over recently. And uh, as he was um, in the week that he was with us, between speaking on the one Sunday where he was full of telling the stories about the incredible things that God is doing, the following Sunday he'd had some WhatsApp messages and videos from some church pastors who'd seen their whole church decimated in that week, um, including families of 12 that only two of that family were left alive um, because of persecution. Now, within a world where we're sensationalised by the news all the time, it's hard for that to really penetrate our hearts as reality. But what I want to do this morning is to draw us closer to the reality that we have a part to play in that story. But also their stories have a part to play in our story and strengthening us in the gospel, strengthening us in our faith, strengthening us in our vision of Jesus. So I want to encourage you with stories of faith and faithfulness. Before I get into that though, I just felt God just give me something as we're um, worshipping from Hebrews Chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11, if you know the chapter at all, it, it goes through all of these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament who kind of did you know, ph- phenomenal kind of works of grace and God w- was upon them. But it picks up at the end of uh, chapter 11. It says, All of these, though commended uh, for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And sometimes there's a gap between our requests and God's resolution. And in here, the, the gap between the request and the resolution was actually extended beyond people's life frames. And sometimes in our context, we make prayers and we ask God for stuff. But the resolution to that request can come a little bit further down the line. And the biggest challenge for us is holding on to faith and conviction when we're not seeing the fullness of the things that we've hoped for or longed for or prayed for within the context we're asking. Certainly in the West, I think we're so kind of, you know, boxed in that we expect that if we ask something immediately, the next moment will be delivered. We've got this kind of, you know, here and now culture. And uh, one of the challenges and one of the encouragements around the world is that actually you've got people who are living in circumstances that are deeply painful, that are praying for God to release them. But in the midst of that, know that God is with them in the midst of that. I don't know if many of you in 1990 were kind of encouraged to pray into the 1040 window, which is between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude and has the greatest density of unreached people groups in the world. In 1990, there's this whole move um, around the world to pray. Spring happened 21 years after prayer had been kind of mobilised globally. Things started to spark in the Middle East. And uh, certainly some of my friends in Egypt, um, when the Arab Spring happened in 2011, they're like, God is answering our prayers. You know, all of our Christmases have come at once. There's going to be change and there's going to be new opportunity. In Egypt, what happened was that the Muslim Brotherhood came to power through a democratic election, um, but the Muslim Brotherhood came to power. And what that meant was an increase, actually, of persecution for the church, an increase of restriction, an increase of suffering. Um, More than 100 people died for their uh, faith in Jesus in that year. And chatting to the pastors, they were like, God, we thought you were answering our prayer. We thought this was the moment where all of our prayers that had been deposited were, were coming to bear. Where are you, God? You know, where are you? Are you even there? Are you listening to us? How can you allow these things to be going on when we are facing this? A year later, the Muslim Brotherhood were deposed. And in that year, something significantly had shifted. And what shifted was that under the Muslim Brotherhood, the increase of persecution, the increase of suffering, 
um, of Christians was pronounced, but lots of people saw that on their TV screens. Also with IS kind of running rampage across segments of <coughs> the Middle East, a lot of the Muslim community in Egypt saw something played out in front of them that horrified them. And at the same time, what they saw played out in front of them was majoritively the Coptic church, which accounts for about 10% of the Egyptian population, who were often those who were suffering the persecution, that their response to the aggression, their response to the persecution, was to love and was to forgive, rather than to push back. And what that did was, in this context where people had anticipated, um, well, had witnessed these two realities, is it caused people to think, actually, What's the reality here? Because many of them had grown up to believe that Christianity was this slightly despotic faith, you know, based around three gods with lots of you know, slightly dodgy kind of love feasts was their understanding. But they saw played out in them a completely different reality. And actually, since 2013, there's been a phenomenal amount of those who were previously you know, Muslims who have come to faith in Jesus and have experienced his love and his forgiveness. I was out there in September and went to one church that's baptised 6,000 Muslims to faith in the last two years. That's a phenomenal number. And actually talking to church leaders, they recognise that probably, they reckon that about 38% of the Muslim population of Egypt has ideologically rejected Islam because of what they've experienced. So I just say that as a bit of an encouragement, actually, that sometimes when we're praying and things don't seem to, in the immediacy of the moment, seem to represent the change we're praying for, longing for, hoping for, it does not mean that God is not active. It just means that God sometimes has something better up his sleeve. And the whole context of this Hebrews 11 is that the better that was up God's sleeve was actually the redemption of all mankind, including us. The better up God's sleeve was, it was Jesus. That was the better thing up God's sleeve. And so I just felt God wanted to encourage some of you here, maybe it's just one person, that actually that God has things in hand. You know, don't fear the absence in the, in the moment that you're defining. Don't fear that because God isn't acting in that space in the way that you imagine, that he is not active. And just the encouragement to pray. You know, 20 years of prayer, and suddenly there's a breakout that is unprecedented. Um, in terms of people coming to faith, and that's spread across the whole Middle East. The problem is we're doing talks like this. There's so many stories that could be told and trying to decide which are the ones that kind of fit. I'm just going to tell you another story of a lady called Hannah. I spent some time with um, back in November. Uh, Hannah is from North Korea. North Korea, again, is a very, very interesting um, country. There's an ideological repression, really, against people walking away with Jesus. Technically, you're allowed to be a Christian, but if you actually begin to walk out the Christian life as Jesus demonstrated, then you face persecution for that faith. It's a bit like Peter in Acts 4, where he's told, you know, they're going to release him, but don't say anything more about Jesus. And he's like, but how can I not speak of Jesus? And because of speaking of Jesus, that's why Peter is then put in prison again. In places like North Korea, it's if you walk in the ways of Jesus, that's when you face persecution. Carrying the label of a Christian isn't a problem, but living the life of a follower of Jesus is a problem. Hannah grew up in North Korea in the 1990s. There's a, a famine for about 10 years. Where about 3 million people died in that time frame of the famine. She and her husband escaped to China with their son and their daughter. 
And, uh, and whilst in China, they, they met uh, members of the underground church that told them about Jesus and told them about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the purpose that God gave them and peace and joy. And they were so won over by this reality because they'd lived in a, in a context of ideological repression where you were only ever brought up to believe the things that uh, Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-un was telling you. So hearing this narrative of a God who loves you, who forgives you, who brings you life and purpose was a completely different reality for them. And, and they said, well, if this is what God is like, we want to know that God. And as, as they then prayed, they just, Hannah told me of how her, it's like her heart melted as she was being prayed for. Something of a different reality just kind of, you know, opened her heart up to something. And, uh, and as a result of that, her and her husband went out into the streets of China and was then looking for opportunities to share the story of Jesus with others. In the midst of that activity, uh, they were captured, they were arrested, and because they were also found to be from North Korea, they were repatriated to North Korea. Because of their activity and because they'd escaped the country, they were put in a political prison camp in North Korea for re-education. Re-education is a polite way of saying um, changing people's mindset through whatever level of physical force or torture is necessary. I'm not going to describe to you the level of torture they went through um, because we then get lost in a sensationalising of a story. But suffice to say, when Hannah was uh, reconnected with her husband in prison, she didn't even recognise him because of his disfigurement, because of the torture he'd gone under. He had a broken collarbone, he had broken ribs, he was stooped over. They were released from prison with their 12-year-old son and their daughter, Grace. And, uh, and quickly they decided that they weren't going to be able to live in North Korea just because of one of the famine and two because of fear of reprisals. So Hannah and her daughter um, set off to China to try and get back across the border. And Hannah's husband and 12-year-old son were going to wait behind in North Korea and come along a few weeks later. Hannah and daughter safely made it to China, were welcomed in by the church that first introduced them to Jesus. And then Hannah waited for a month, waited for two months, waited for three months. Two years later, she found out that her husband had died because of his injuries shortly after she'd left. And the 12-year-old son hadn't been able to cross the river. And she's not seen him in 20 years. Now, for those of you who've got children around 12 or grandchildren around 12, that's one side. But this is the reality in spending time with Hannah the, the times where she got emotional was when she talked about her son and asked that we'd pray um, for him. Maybe let's just be quiet for a moment and maybe we could just pray for her son that God would somehow um, facilitate a reconnection. Father, we thank you that you know all things. Thank you that you know exactly where Hannah's son is. Lord, you know his circumstances. And Father, I just pray right now for Hannah's son, Lord, Lord, assuming he's alive, that you'd be with him and that you'd somehow bring about the ability for him to find Hannah, to reconnect, Lord. And we just pray for Hannah in her grief and in her pain. We just pray your comfort, Jesus. Amen. For me, the, the power of, of Hannah's story wasn't so much what she endured um, because of her faith and that she and her husband would not deny Jesus um, no matter what they did uh, to them. In fact, her husband, whilst undergoing torture, said, you might as well kill me because I'm not going to deny what's true in my heart. 
But for me, the more powerful part of Hannah's story is, and this wasn't a part of one of the reasons that we had brought her over to tell her story, is that when she was back in China waiting for her husband and her son to come, she was back out on the streets every day looking to find people that she could share the hope of Jesus with. Such was the reality of it in her heart. Now, when she told me that in the midst of the pain that she was in, that was deeply challenging for me. I didn't quite know what to do with that. But after six months of going on the streets to share faith, we've just rebuffle after rebuffle after rebuffle, where people weren't interested. This one woman started to show a bit of interest. Um, and then she was like, oh, no, 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 actually, no, I'm not interested in this. And Hannah's disappointment when she felt this was maybe an opportunity was so profound on her face that this woman then took pity and said, well, I'm not interested, but here's, here's, a, here's the name of a, of a lady. This is her address and this is her phone number. She might be interested. So Hannah went to the address that she'd been given and found herself standing outside an army barracks in China, which is not a particularly safe place to be as an illegal kind of immigrant um, in, in, at that time. She was still determined, though, so she went to the, the guard in the, in the, at the checkpoint and said, look, do you know this person? And he said, no, I don't know her, but said, you can use my phone to phone. So Hannah phoned the phone number, and uh, a man answered the phone, and he was one of the senior-ranking officials in the barracks, and, and Hannah explained how you know, she was looking to find this woman, and the officer said, well, this is actually my wife. She's um, bedridden, and she can't come out to you, but I'll come and meet you, and I'll bring you in to meet my wife. So he came out, met Hannah at the gate, took her into the barracks, all the security and took her to his wife who was bedridden in the room and left them to it and Hannah began to tell her how she'd got her name the context and that she's sharing Jesus with this woman and she then began to pray over this woman who had um, fairly aggressive latter stages of cancer and as Hannah prayed for this woman she wept over her as she prayed and the woman was so moved by both Hannah's compassion and love but also the story of grace that she there and then decided that if this was what God was like, then she wanted to know this God, and she also then became a Christian. For three years after that, every week, Hannah used to smuggle herself into the army barracks through a little hole in the wall where the cats and dogs used to come in and out of. She described how her hips often used to get stuck in the, uh, in the bits, which was a good uh, diet constraint for her to make sure that she didn't overeat and got stuck in the wall. But for three years, every week, she'd go in and she would disciple this woman in the ways of Jesus. And as a result of that, four other women um, came to faith in those barracks. I don't know about you, but suddenly hearing that for me, I felt really, really challenged, really provoked, really humbled. And it raised the question for me, you know, is Jesus worth it for me? How do I cope with that? Paul talks about, and he writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And really, I want to boast about the faith and faithfulness of our brothers and sisters, but I don't want to put them on a pedestal because that alienates them from you and us, as you and I, as some kind of superheroes, which they're not. They're people just like you and I, wrestling with the same things that you and I wrestle with, seeking to follow Jesus, seeking to love others, seeking to resist the evil one. <clears throat> and I want to talk to you about some of the suffering and some of the pain of our brothers and sisters around the world, but I don't want you to pity them. Because if we pity them, it alienates them from you and I as some kind of charity project or side issue, which they're not. They're our family, and yet they're experiencing a very different reality of life. And if you ever get to go to these places, the sense of being family is incredibly pronounced, and it's really challenging. How do you come back and do life as normal when your family are living in those situations? 
I find it most pronounced in, in Lebanon, where there's about two million refugees there who are phenomenally come from a Muslim-majority nation that has opened up in Syria because of the war, who are now hearing the gospel, and again, thousands are turning to Jesus. But seeing people in the situation where they are suffering is incredibly painful, and I come back thinking, how can I live the life that I live when this is going on for others around the world? And so I wrestle with that. How do you, how do, you do that? So I want to encourage you as participants in grace and partners in the gospel with our brothers and sisters around the world. That's what we are. Paul describes in Philippians 1.7, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's just a beautiful sense that Paul captures there, that we are partakers of grace. And as we are standing with and supporting those around the world, we are partaking in the grace of God to them, but also from them. There's an enrichment of our lives that comes when we share with one another. It's a bit like when you meet on a Sunday or you meet in midweek as, as a local church. By meeting with one another, we're provoked and we're agitated and we're encouraged by each other's stories. There may be a moment where we're feeling like full of life and energy and somebody else is suffering. And actually their suffering brings a reality to us to think, we're a part of this. And there's other times where we're suffering and struggling and our faith is wrestling. And by being connected with others, we realise we're not alone. We're not isolated. That's part of the participant, participation in grace. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians that the reason that he's in prison is because of the gospel. It's because of the word of God. So persecution was actually part of the life story of the early church. The, the New Testament was written by persecuted Christians, to persecuted Christians, within the context of persecution. And it's so easy that we kind of read back and we rose tint and we redact the gospel to say what we want it to say, that enables us to stay as we are. It was actually the reality in the early churches. There's a sense of joy and hopefulness and purpose, but there's always cost. There's also persecution. There was also suffering. And if you go back and reread the New Testament, you read how much that is in so many of the books. In fact, if you read you know, the first letter of Peter, every single chapter talks about suffering and persecution. But that isn't the main event. The main event is the gospel. The main event is that people are meeting Jesus and encountering Jesus. And actually the main event around the world is it's because the gospel is forcefully advancing that persecution is happening. That's why it's happening, because the gospel is advancing. In fact, I'll come on a little bit later, persecution is increasing phenomenally. The last five years, there's been an exponential rise of persecution for Christians. And yet in the midst of that, there's been an unprecedented breakthrough of the gospel in places like the 1040 window. So you're kind of caught with these two things. Actually, that the gospel is forcefully advancing, but there is persecution. And whenever we see the penetration of the gospel, it comes with a cost. Jesus says in John 15, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I think one of the challenges that we have sometimes as the church in the West is that we've kind of absorbed the gospel, which is, okay, the gospel adds a little bit more onto our lives. It, it's that you know, cream on the top of the cake that means everything's going to go swimmingly for us. It's very, very hard theologically to agree with that when you look when scripture is the basis for our lifestyle actually it's that there's a greater gift here 
There's a greater purpose, there's a greater reality. And the problem is, if we don't expect and anticipate the challenge as part of the, of the call of following Jesus, then when it comes, we either assume there's something wrong with me, or we assume there's something wrong with God. The reality is neither is true. The reality is, is that the reason that we're facing trials and challenges is because it's to prove the grace of God. And it's because there's an opposition and there's an enemy. Jesus regularly spoke of the cost of following him, how it would cost everything. And as a result of that, many people went away sad. They were, they were wooed by the miracles and by some of his teachings. But then Jesus drove it in and said, I said he said, I want you to have life in all of its fullness, but it will cost everything. Some people heard Jesus' words, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And they were so compelled by those words that though the cost was hard, they threw their all in because they considered that Jesus was worth it. And Jesus called people to give up all of the possibilities of the here and now in order to receive the promise of the now but the not yet. The promise of eternity, the promise of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. That's the narrative that was so compelling that the disciples, though they recognised the cost was extreme, were like, but Jesus, only you have the words of eternal life. You've broke into our reality and you've brought something of an opportunity that we cannot deny. How can we go back to life as normal when you promise us life eternal? That was the wrestle that they were in in that context. Jesus didn't endorse the status quo. He exposed it. Why? In John 12, Jesus talks about the control of the ruler of this world. And Jesus is saying, actually, the gospel is a stepping away from the control of the ruler of this world. Jesus declares a new kingdom, but that kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom of the here and now. There's an opposition there. When people chose that path, it brought them into conflict with the status quo of where things were at. There is a cost to following Jesus. The question is, is it worth it? This is Behir. Behir is also known as Christian number seven. Um, he's from Turkmenistan. And the reason he's known as Christian number seven is that he was the seventh Christian in Turkmenistan after the gospel really began to penetrate. He was uh, compelled by having met a street evangelist uh, from Russia who'd come to Turkmenistan to share his faith within a context where it was illegal to do that. So Behir was so impressed by this man's courage and boldness and also when he kind of interrogated him about his beliefs, there's something sunk in his heart. Behir describes how 4am the following morning, he was resting through these things and he said, God, if you are really, you know, who this man says you are, then make yourself known to me now and I will throw my all in with you. And Behir describes how he had an encounter at 4am, you know, with the living God that totally radicalised his internal world and therefore totally radicalised his external world. And he began to share his faith with others around him, which was difficult because he was a KGB officer. But he began to share his faith with others in the KGB. And his friends were saying to him, but here, you need to shut up or you're going to get yourself in trouble. But he's like, I cannot but speak of what has taken place in my heart. Again, exactly as Peter did in Acts 4. So he was duly arrested, and he was, they tried to force him to renounce his faith. He endured, again, horrific torture. I won't go into the details of it. But after one session of, of torture, and, and a guard had his foot uh, crushing his mouth into the floor and said to Behir, Behir, this mouth will never speak of Jesus. And he took his foot off, and Behir said, you may stop my words and my mouth, but you can never stop the reality of what's in my heart. 
We asked for here if we could tell his story in the UK just to, one, help people to understand the reality of what it costs, but also to understand this sense of that he is worth it. And Beer here said, yes, you can tell my story, but on one condition, that whenever you tell my story, you tell everyone who's listening that if I had to go through it all again, I would, because Jesus is worth it. Now, again, it's challenging, isn't it? Because it's a story that's out there. Reality is when you meet people, the story isn't out there. This is, this is a person. This is their, their walk. Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The gospel compels us to a path of resistance of the status quo. It compels us to cast off the restraint of sin and the world and instead live gloriously and generously for the benefit of our others, of others with our time, with our riches, with the truth, with taking risks. And this path will lead to conflict with the rule of this world. If Peter in Acts 4 had stayed quiet, if the early church had stayed quiet, we wouldn't be where we are today, full of the life of God in us. But when people resisted the status quo of opposition, that's when conflict comes. That's why conflict is happening around the world. We've got a video, but I will not play that now. Um, the World Watch List identifies um, the 50 most challenging places in the world um, to walk in the ways of Jesus. Persecution against Christians continues to escalate. We've just launched this um, in Parliament back in January. And again, the difference over the last five years is just exponential growth in persecution. 245 million Christians now face high to extreme levels of persecution. In 40 of the 50 countries, Christians are at risk of very high or extreme levels of persecution. Again, if you see the map from five years ago to what it is now, there is an increase of persecution but there is also an increase of the penetration of the gospel. Christians in over a third of the world's countries are now facing high levels of persecution, or worse. The church is at risk in many places of the world. And it's hard to kind of wake up to that reality when we live in such security, but it's important to wake up to that reality for ourselves, but also for those who are currently sitting in darkness and under the dominion of death. The gospel is not about making bad things better, but dead things alive. And it matters because you and I and our friends and our family and our neighbours and our work colleagues matter. And what's going on around is about the contention for the gospel. That's what it's about. Here's a frog. <laughs> so I'm sure many of you heard this parable that if you put a frog into boiling water, immediately they jump straight back out of it. But if you put a frog into cold water and then gradually turn up the heat, then they actually are fried from the inside out and they don't even realise that they're in that situation. This is the Holocaust um, in Germany. So we've recognised that again recently. What's fascinating in Germany is the propaganda that led up to the Second World War and things like Kristallnacht and just the persecution of Jews. And also just the fact that the church became fairly complicit ideologically with Nazis coming to power and hadn't realised all that was going on in the background. And it's a bit like that picture of the frog. Suddenly you find yourself in a situation where many after the event of the Second World War, they were horrified at what had taken place and saw themselves as complicit because they hadn't woken up and smelt the coffee. Then you've got people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaking into that, writing into that, who'd seen the reality. And this provocation is it's so easy to become just complacent in the midst of the environment we're in. 
fact, they did a survey recently, I think about 10% in that survey in the UK believed that the Holocaust had been exaggerated or didn't even happen. That's quite a worrying rea reality. This is North Korea. Again, this blinding to reality. 26 million people who have no access to the world that we live in. There's no access to the internet when you're in there. There's no access to kind of phone outside of the country. So they are brought up in this ideological regime which is all about recognition of the supreme leader from Kim Il-sung, from Kim Jong-il to now Kim Jong-un. And all of that they're told is about stuff about other parts of the world which is just, it's fake news to use a Trumpism. But it, it genuinely is fake news. And when people come out of that, Again, the reality of what's taking place in Egypt is that many people believed things about Christianity that weren't true, and then people encounter Jesus. It's a different reality. If we don't see the big picture, our direction may be leading towards destruction, and we need to catch up to real time. Just before um, Christmas, a, a year ago, I was driving down a <coughs> country road about 5.45 in the morning on my way to work, and was following my sat-nav, it took me down this different route. And as I was following Satnav, it was fairly kind of cold, it was a bit foggy, I was doing about 40 miles an hour. And, uh, and suddenly the, the, there's a, the Satnav jumped in junction at the end of the road, so I quickly put my brakes on, hit sheet ice, went straight across this road, was going into this wall, managed to spin the car, hit a post and bounced into the wall. So lagging nearly led to peril, not seeing the end result or not being conscious of the reality nearly led to what could have been a fatal crash. Thankfully it wasn't, we just had an expensive bill to resolve. And... <laughs> but the challenges with these things is it's, kind of, it's recognising the times and the seasons that we're in. Paul says in Ephesians, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That sense of you know, agitation to wake up, to recognise the environment we're in. And there is a spiritual slumber, which is the thin end of the wedge of persecution, that we need to see, and we need to wake up to the reality of. This isn't new, it's biblical, it's historical, it's global. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The reason I've put so many scriptures in here is that within a world of fake news, it's important that we know what's the source of our hope, what's the source of the truth, what's the, what's the thing that defines the parameters of what we believe to, to be true. Is it what we feel about life? Is, is that what we're saying? Actually, the Bible needs to be anchoring our faith because Paul writes to Timothy, he says that in the last days, actually there'll be lots of kind of ideologies, lots of belief systems, lots of immorality. Therefore, keep yourself true. Keep yourself anchored. And our brothers and sisters around the world are a tremendous gift to us. Talking about that participation of grace. We participate in the grace of being able to provide you know, prayer, of being able to support, of being able to release resources to enable the church to exist in parts of the world. But actually, our brothers and sisters around the world are a tremendous gift and a tremendous grace to us because they remind us of reality. And as we partake in the grace of supporting them, we also partake in the grace of God for them. The persecuted church are like a living, breathing reality of early church spirituality. They remind us of what matters. They remind us of the value of the gospel, that he is worth it, that Jesus is worth it. They also remind us of the reality of the enemy. Paul t Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, do not be unaware of the enemy's tactics. And when we look at the persecuted church, we're reminded to be conscious of the reality of the enemy. They remind us of the incomparable worth of knowing Jesus. 
And it's so easy to lose sight of that. But then you hear other stories and you're agitated, well, to hopefully to humble ourselves again and say, Jesus, would you reawaken my heart to you? They remind us of our de- need to daily depend and not to become complacent. They expose us to the reality of the enemy's tactics. They remind us of the grace that is available to us to overcome. They remind us of God's incomparable power. And they remind us that no matter our circumstances or our suffering, God is greater. Biblically, the anchor of hope is not in circumstance, it's in Christ. And our brothers and sisters remind us of that reality, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, will never overcome it. No matter what situation you're in today that may feel incredibly difficult and have all of the emotion of just the suffering around. What I'm saying is not diminishing that, but it's saying that actually in the midst of all of that, you know, Jesus is a sure and certain hope. Just one final story. Um, we need to finish, don't we? Um, in North Africa, again, one of the, the areas within the 1040 window, heard recently of a story of a, of a woman who had had a vision of Jesus, had a dream of Jesus um, in her sleep, um, who had told her to go to this particular place, this church, to speak to this pastor, and he would explain to her more about the meaning of her dream. So she went and she found this pastor, spoke to him, told her about her dream, and he explained what the dream meant, that it was about Jesus. In that moment, she encountered Jesus and she gave her life to Jesus. And again, she was kind of radicalized on the inside by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit. And that radically affected her external world and how she set her sight. She said to the pastor, I need to go back and I need to tell every woman in the mosque about this Jesus who has transformed my life. And he said to her, you need to be really careful because there's many others that have gone that route and we've never seen them ever, ever again. But she was so determined, she's like, how can I not tell people of this hope that I've encountered? So she went away. They hadn't heard anything for a week. They didn't hear anything for two weeks and they began to assume the worst. Then there was a knock on the door and this woman was there beaming from ear to ear. She said, Pastor, Pastor, you'll never get what? Guess what? I've been and I've spoken to every single woman in my mosque and every single woman on the night I had the dream of Jesus had the same dream of Jesus. And I've told them who he is and what he means. So... The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Prayer makes an incredible difference. And the persecuted church value and appreciate our prayers. Those Christians, our family, suffering persecution. But they also provoke us to take our stand. They provoke us to stand up and to stand out. And I really would love to leave that with you as a charge. Just to be provoked by the stories. But recognise that Jesus is worth it. That Jesus' promises are true as much in Whitstable as they are in a North Korean prison camp or, or in, Chinese, in North Africa. A couple of things I'd love us to land with to finish, if that's okay. Um, well, I'll be at the, the bat later on. If, if you aren't currently supporting uh, the Persecuted Church and you'd love to find out more how to do that, um, then I'd love to talk to you about that. Again, whether that's prayer, whether that's giving, whether that's giving your, your time. Um, there are needs that are growing around the world. I could spend lots of time explaining that, but just to say um, we're trying to respond to the local church, trying to do local church ministry in places around the world where they're under-resourced in the way that you're trying to do local church ministry here. We'd love to find more ways to connect with that. Also this morning, I'd love to give you an opportunity, if, if anybody is here today and you haven't yet gone all in in your commitments to, to follow Jesus and you want to do that, then I'd love to give you the opportunity to do that today. 
And thirdly, I'd love to give any of us a sense of just felt a conviction that we've lost that compelling vision of Jesus um, to, to do more, to stand up and to stand out. You know, we don't need to feel condemned. This wasn't about promoting heroes. This is about, you know, actually communicating the body of Christ, the family we're part of. But sometimes when you hear others' testimonies, it realigns you, doesn't it, to a call to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. So Justin, if in hearing the stories this morning, there's something convicted in you that you just want to kind of come to the front and say, Jesus, just renew my vision of you, that I have the boldness and the courage to stand up and to stand out. And the, the, the difference in the early church between the, uh, Christian, the, the disciples who rejected Jesus prior to the crucifixion, who then were willing to stand up and be crucified for their faith, was that... It, the internal encounter with Jesus, the Holy Spirit presenting Jesus inside. It's not about being a better Christian. It's about having a deeper encounter. So if I hand back to Simon Keenan to see how you want to lead that. Let's stand together. <laughs> We haven't got a huge amount of time, so I want to just give you those three uh, chances to respond today, really. If you feel God has been speaking to you or touching you, why not make your way down to the front now and we'll get some guys to pray for you because we are literally on 12 o'clock. So if that's you, three, two, one, go. Okay. Um, and I'm also just going to pray for the rest of us as well as we stand here this morning. God's been speaking powerfully to us today. And uh, there's a real sense when you hear stories from around the world, just we, we get to see how big God is again. We get just to see how big he is and how he's working and uh, our minds are expanding. So, Lord, we just thank you for your presence here. It's been so powerful and tangible this morning. And God, our desire is that you would come and fill us afresh and ex- extend our hearts, extend our understanding of who you are. Lord, we never want to put you in a box, God. We never want to contain you. And so, Lord, would you come and renew our minds this morning with the truth. And Lord, I pray for those who are in the valley of decision about you, Lord God, who are just thinking about you. I just pray, Father, that you would impart... Uh, such a significant um, reality, uh, encounter. The encounters that these guys' stories we've had this morning, God, are just so powerful. But we know, God, you're right here this morning, in this room with us by your Spirit. And Lord, we thank you. We're connected with your church family across the whole earth. So Lord, I just pray that you would maintain that connection, God, with us as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at WhitRiverside.